So when last we gathered just a week ago, it was the idea of why start without a book? With the idea of prayerfulness being something that might be able to start without anything in writing. There's a story that is told by the Baal Shem Tov. Now, the Baal Shem Tov, uh, when he tells this story of Rabbi Levi of Berdichev, Rabbi Levi is no more than 20, because the Baal Shem Tov died when Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev was 20. But he explained that there was a time that Rabbi Levi came to the synagogue, surrounded by his own disciples who he had at a young age. And he stopped suddenly at the doorway to the synagogue. And his disciples were a little surprised. They were shocked that he didn't just immediately go across the threshold and enter. And they asked, what is it? He said, the synagogue is full of prayers. And at first they thought that this was a compliment. But he was saying, no, the synagogue is full of prayers that haven't made their way beyond it, that are locked in there, that are blocked in there, that can't travel because they don't have what for to take them on their way. They're stripped of joy. They were said without real meaning. I try to think of it not as such a story of indictment so much as a story of painful realization. But there you have a story that's 250 years old, 270 years old at this point, where it's not so dissimilar from now. But of course, that was the time of Hasidut, of that movement that was trying to say, sometimes what we're looking for is not always in the words of the book. So the question is, what could have gotten those prayers through? We have the same issue. We pick up a book. We sit among community. We say the words. Are our words not going anywhere? We'll see. Last week, we spoke about beginning a personal practice of talking to God. The practice of hit bodidut from a binachman of Breslav, the idea that you just begin a process, perhaps unfolding day by day, of plain talk, without the silence in between, keeping it up for a measured portion of time, perhaps 20 minutes. I want to look at the first text under the sheet that says awareness. Talks about a disciplined practice. Even in matters of the heart, we can do better with practice. There are skills involved in opening the heart. Obviously, we can never schedule the encounter with God. Even if we do our part, we cannot control what might get sent our way. What we do know, however, is that the more we practice, the more productive our practice will be. We'll become more efficient at emptying our minds and listening, listening to the needs of those around us, 
to our own hearts and to God. Spontaneous prayer that's part of a cumulative, consistent, disciplined practice works. When I choose a moment of extreme pain to do something I've never done before, it doesn't help me or anybody. I'm just grasping at straws. But when I continue a long chain of practices, I'm tapping into all the experiences I've had previously. There are a lot of times that we practice something that we never really hope to have to put into, into any kind of practice. I'm at a school. We're always doing fire drills. We hope we never have to really do a fire drill. But we want to be prepared in the moment for when it happens. But this idea of being connected to God is something that we really might want to do we might not want to have it as a, well, I'm prepared just in case, but a, I'm prepared so that in those moments that I know they're going to arise, I'm going to be ready. I was talking with Richard earlier. I won't share exactly what you said, but it was the notion of what is this incredible Judaism of ours meant to do? Not just prayer, but the practices that we engage in. We hear some people say, I'm not a religious person. Sometimes you ask somebody who says, I'm not a religious person, and they say, I really don't want to be. Like being part of the peoplehood picture. But religion is a word that has a nice essence to it. That L-I-G in the middle. From the word ligament. That which connects and the ligament, which is going to allow you to operate something that brings you into a semblance of connection. So religion is just that. Yes, it has its darker moments, perhaps. It has its corruptors. But at its essence, as is buried in the word, is the idea that we want to relig ourselves, to reconnect ourselves. And we might be able to do that with our community through our spiritual practice, our community gatherings at places like Beth Hillel. But What does it really take? What was missing in that story that the Baal Shem Tov told about Rabbi Levi Yitzchak? Meaning the people were there with their prayers. Presumably they wanted to say the prayers. So something might have been missing. And I want to suggest maybe it's the next text on the page. There's some extra ones right over there that gives us a sense of what we're missing. It's the famous story of the burning bush. So I have it on the page, but I'm going to reckon that you know it pretty well. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. I'll keep it all in the English, but Horev, for those that care. The mountain of God, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire. It did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. 
Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Interesting. Moses is standing on holy ground. We've heard of this story. We've seen it now in multiple versions, live and you know, actors and animated. Why is the ground holy? I know, you don't really want to raise the hand. Anybody want to offer a reason why the ground is holy? Yeah. Well, because God is there. You hear the voice of God. We're being told this is God's voice. So maybe it's God's voice. You're in the presence of God. Okay. How far does it go? Does it go as far as earshot? (laughs) Presumably he's not standing right at the bush because his eyebrows would be getting singed. So how far back is he? Is he far enough to feel the heat? Do the roots of this bush go out so far that he's standing on top of earth that covers those roots? And so that's why it's holy ground. Is it awareness? I think it is. A lot of other people might say, no, 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 you're down the wrong path. But I think it's all about the awareness. First of all, if you've got a bush that's burning, imagine if you walked into someone's living room, lovely fireplace, log is burning. Nowadays, things are so cleverly designed that it could be a gas fireplace, and you have to do a little bit of a double take. Some are quite convincing. But if you were to pass through a room with a wood fire going, How long would you have to sit there and wait before you notice that the wood, while it's glowing red, now it's turning to an ash that's crumbling? You have to have a degree of patience. You have to be aware. Maybe there's an element of curiosity in it as well. And so, as the text tells us, Moses has the awareness it's not burning. He has the thought, I'm going to go over and see this. I'm going to take action. I'm going to delve deeper into this. It's not just that I want a better look. I want an explanation for this. It's a moment of wonder for him. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush. I think at that moment, that ground became holy because of what happened within him. Which is to say that that's a moment that we can all have. We don't need the voice of God and the bush. That wasn't the holy ground. But holiness can reside in our ability to turn a space into something more than just a place for our feet to rest on. Importantly, this is just Moses the shepherd. This is not Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher. This is not Moses the leader of the exodus from Egypt. It's a married man, shepherd, and he comes to this realization. 
And the question is, what does it take for us to develop that degree of awareness about where we stand? And I think that that practice of talking to God, of allowing that to unfold, and of developing that practice of letting more and more things start to spill out of us, that's where the power of that practice starts to be. And in terms of the language that we need to use, I think it should be a language that's really authentic to us, that's true to what we're feeling inside. I shared last week that, for me, I have a, I have a block somewhere here. And I am doing a better effort to try to connect here to here. Sometimes I'm successful. Sometimes I'm not. But it gets easier the more that I kind of start to clear that channel. The more that I let things flow through in terms of what I must be really feeling and allowing it to come into my recognition. It's as if I'm creating that pathway. The pathway through the forest gets overgrown if no one uses it. And before you know it, it's hard to traverse. But a consistently used path will show you the way every time. Let's take a look at the next text. It's a lovely text by Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi. And it has an element of the if you know, you know in it. Oh, I didn't put on this one, did I? It's on my other one. We're going to tell it to you, so you get to hear it this way. He says, if you've ever tasted an apple from the tree, I'm lucky because right in my mother-in-law's backyard, we may not be in prime apple country, but there's what everyone thought was the crab apple tree, and everyone was always sort of kicking them until one other neighbor said, well, you know that that's an actual eating tree. I was like, no, we had no idea. And of course, they're delicious. No one thought to try one. He said, if you've ever tasted an apple plucked right off of a New England tree, you know the difference between a supermarket apple and a real apple. A supermarket apple has been washed and waxed and refrigerated. Vital parts of its chemistry have ebbed away but an apple plucked from the mother tree, a mechaya, a resurrection, a life-giving force, tastes like a living apple. Reb Zalman adds, prayer's the same. Many who live their lives as Jews, even many who pray every day, live on a wrapped and refrigerated version of prayer. We go to synagogue dutifully, and we rise when we rise, and we sit when we should sit. We read and sing along. We answer amen in all of the right places. We may even rattle through the prayers with ease. We sacrifice vitality for shelf life. And the neshama, the Jewish soul, can taste the difference. True prayer is a bursting forth of the soul to God. 
what can be more natural and more human than turning to God's listening presence with our thanks and our burdens. Prayer is one of the simplest and easiest of practices. It's always right there. The act of speaking directly to God, of opening our hearts to God's response, is one of the ultimate mystical experiences. Like that, mystical experiences. We're often sort of saying, well, what age do you have to be to study Kabbalah, the mystical tradition? And is it really arcane? How accessible is it? But the experiences that we have that might be maybe mystical with a lowercase m, the ones that really can nourish us, maybe is born of a bursting forth of the soul to God. That might be what was missing in the story that the Baal Shem Tov told of Rabbi Levi of Yitzchak, Levi Yitzchak of, of Berdichev, that the prayers got stuck because there was no real bursting forth of the soul that could have bumped them along. We have these two stories, you know, we tell them every high holidays. They're in all the, probably the margins of all of the books that we use. One of them is the story of the boy with the flute. The prayers on Yom Kippur, they're sort of not really going anywhere, and all of a sudden this boy grabs the flute, and in a desecration of Yom Kippur, this little boy blows the flute. He doesn't know the prayers, he can't read the Hebrew, and so simply blowing that tune on that flute at that moment, everyone is shocked, they all whirl around, but it's the rabbi who realizes at that moment that that was what was needed, that genuine feeling, what was, what was needed for the prayers to rise. And yet it's interesting, we tell that story, we put it into our books for the time of year when our pews are as filled as they're going to be, and yet we desecrate our own tradition by not giving people the space to veer off from the book. So it's a story that says, even Yom Kippur and the playing of a musical instrument, that's what was needed. And yet all too often we just seek refuge in the words of the book, maybe not trusting ourselves that we're going to find the right words within ourselves. The other story is the one about the town where there's a visitor and he notices that people begin to notice there's a fire in town, they're banging the drums. And, uh, of course, the fire is extinguished, and he brings the idea back to his hometown, and they bang the drums, right? And the fire that has broken out, that conflagration, burns down the building. He says, I don't understand. We were banging all the drums. So he said, no, that's just to wake you up. you got to go and get the bucket brigade going. So it's the Rambam, Maimonides, that says, this is, this is the story of the shofar. It says, awake, O oh, you slumbering people. So something's needed to wake us up. And for us, sometimes we tell ourselves we're too busy. Sometimes we say, well, I mean, it's not my day for prayer. That's Saturday. Maybe it's my Friday night. But what if you are saying, I am so overwhelmed 
with love for my people Israel, and my thoughts are with them. My head is on the pillow right now, and I want to just, I just want to hope that things are going to be okay in Israel. So do you have to sit up in bed? Do you have to step out of bed and put your feet on the ground? Do you have to have your feet in slippers? Do you have to kneel on one knee? Or is it enough to think the thought? I think that that's a moment where you can even just quietly say it. But we don't take advantage of all of these moments that are going to make that path through the forest. They're going to make the path smoother for things to go on. I think of the high holidays and I think of the marathon. Not that the day of Yom Kippur is so long, it's like a marathon, but it is longer than your average Shabbat service and it's certainly a lot longer than your weekday service. But for those who say, listen, this is my time of year and I need to be moved by this experience, they're going 26.2 miles and they haven't been training. You've got to start with the small distances. You've got to get the training runs in. That's the practice, the discipline. And we're not always focused on that for more than the physicality of our bodies. I don't think I told you the story of how I learned Mariv last week, did I? I don't think I did. It was a break-my-teeth moment. I had reached my 20s. I was getting more involved in Jewish life and kind of returned to it on my own terms. And I realized that I stumbled my way through the Amidah, this core central prayer of all the three services of a weekday, of all days. And so I thought, okay, let me get better at these words. I'm really good at those beginning ones, you know, the ones we all say out loud. So, of course, how could I not be good with those? So it's the other ones. And I made a practice, standing in my, mostly my living room, each night for Ma'ariv, the evening service. I opened up the book, and I just started going through, taking my time, Sometimes I had time to get pretty far. Other times, there were things that got in the way. Some words were easier. Some were harder. More and more of my Hebrew was coming back to me. And I was getting more familiar with it. And eventually, I was able to make it to the end. And then in time, I was able to make it have some softer edges to it. And more of a fluid nature to it. It was a real investment of my time. But for what now? If I had the do-over, and I could go back and put that kind of investment of time into my own words, where would I be now? Now I realize it's sort of a chicken and an egg kind of a thing. If I hadn't had that experience, that might not have led me to a different path that brings me back tonight. But I think the path to gaining fluency in my own personal prayer would have been a lot shorter. First of all, the language would have been English. And the words wouldn't have been highfalutin English. They would have been just for me. 
No one was listening to my version of Ma'ariv, the evening service then. Thank goodness. I really would have probably felt embarrassed. Maybe judged. Probably would have annoyed people if I was doing it more in public. Certainly as trying to lead a service and stumbling and thumping my way through. So just a fraction of that time, if I had put into the personal prayer, how much more could that have set me off on a really incredible trajectory? But it doesn't work that way, right? That's why I go back to that 2017 sort of epiphany that I had at the Song Leader Boot Camp. You never know how your path is going to end up. There was an interesting question last week, and it's been sitting with me. It was the idea that as you are practicing this, let me just talk to God, and getting used to it, and carving out 20 minutes where you're just going to do it. By the way, I went up to 30 minutes because I got this really cool sand timer. And it's not an hourglass, but the first thing I had to do was, I wonder how long this is. Turns out it's 30 minutes and anywhere from 20 seconds to 50 seconds. I don't know why the sand goes through at different rates. Sometimes it's a little longer, because I assume it's sort of vacuum sealed. But the more that you talk, you're, you're desperate to come up with something else to say. And you don't really want to take refuge in the sovereign of the universe. I'm working on this. I've just some things that I know I'm going to bring out to tell you. I just don't know them yet. I'm just moving through the words. I know I'm not supposed to, to stop. I know that Rabbi Nachman and then Chaim told me that I'm not really supposed to stop. I'm going to keep going. You can't dodge it too long. Because knowing that you're speaking and no one's listening, before you know it, in your stream of consciousness, things are tumbling out. And even though it's the stream of consciousness, I want to say it's the stream of unconsciousness. Things that you never were planning to say, the things that you didn't know were there, and that maybe when you say them and you speak it, and you kind of look at it, and you walk around it, and you say, huh, I didn't even know I was thinking of that. I didn't know that that was important to me. I didn't know I had an issue with that. I didn't know I'd been carrying that. You are ultimately finding your way to the absolute inner chamber of your soul. And the question then is, uh-huh. And isn't that narcissistic? That's been sitting with me. Is this all just an exercise where you're talking, but I could have gone to my analyst and maybe achieved the same thing? So why is it different? What is it that makes that Jewish? So I've often heard it said that meditation doesn't necessarily involve what we'll call a higher power. And that maybe this hit bodedut, this spiritual practice from a Jewish standpoint of, of speaking to God, it, that's the extra piece. I also kind of come from the psychological end of things. 
mm-hmm. in terms of my job. And I feel like Floyd, who was Jewish, may have gotten some of his revelation from Jewish practice. Hmm. You know, in, in terms of treatment, in terms of, you know, release, release to the actor, release to I don't know enough about his own background. Right. Anyway, I've been sitting with that why. So why do we do it? What are we trying to do as we reach that? And I don't want to limit things in any way as though to say that the ground itself was not holy, that there's not some residual effect that continues on afterwards. I kind of do love the fact that we don't really worry about where Sinai is because it was the collective experience of our people that we've continued to sort of hand down. There's the product that we hold as sacred that has its, its mythic origins at that moment. So we don't need to make a pilgrimage to get to the mountain. We bring it with us wherever we go. But that's not to say that it isn't. But I love the idea that we can make holiness if we just let our curiosity go up a bit. And if we keep our focus. And you might say, yeah, but we're not Moses. But this is a critical part, and it's going to be one of the pieces that start to lead us to next week, because next week is very much going into the book, because it's not going to be that we just pray without a book. We are going to find ourselves in the synagogue, in the sanctuary, opening a book on passages that maybe we'd like to get a little more meaning out of them. So for this moment, I, mean, I certainly have the time to do it, let's, let's jump in with, with Moses. The, the line that comes at the end, the one that we didn't even read. Where was that page? Had it here. There's one over there. Line somewhere. Or somebody else can read it for me. Right? But take off your sandals for the place you're standing on is holy God, is holy ground. Then God said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. There's almost like a, a recognition that then leads to, I, I shouldn't be this close to something. I don't know, I think, I think we're trying to achieve a closeness. But more importantly, the answer that God gives to him, the Hebrew is, 
Elohei Avraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov. This is the three-parter that is at the core of that first blessing of our silent prayer, the Amidah. And yes, we may add the matriarchs. This is the line that is straight from Torah. It is from the burning bush that why does Moses have to be told who's speaking from the bush? Because he's never heard it before. Moses does not know God. The great Moses. I see that as so empowering to say, you know, we can never be a Moses. Really, you can't be a simple person of the earth bringing your flock somewhere and you notice something and it's your first experience with God. Well, I thought the simple meaning of it is that he was an Egyptian who was raised by Egyptians. And this is when he finds out who he really is. He does have some time with his family, right? And he does go out to see his people when he's in Egypt. So he does, there is a sense that he might know his, his origin story. But this is his origin story as a person who says, I, I, I don't know what this voice is. It has to be told, I'm the God of your ancestors. So that every time we open up that prayer book and we are praying that, because I was trying to think, well, which prayer should we sort of do? I mean, I, I can't do the ones that are too early because you might get there a little bit later. But we know you're going to see the Amidah. You're going to see it no matter what time you come, the early one or the late one, or you're going to see it at the Shiva Minyan, or you're going to see it on a Sunday morning. So it's there for everybody. And it's, yeah. No, no. Well, I, um, I was struggling with this sort of the narcissism, perhaps, of the internal prayer, and it strikes me that Moses has innate felt looking out for his people. Right? We meet him when he kills the taskmaster, he meets his wife because he fights off the brigands or whatever, right? Like he innately has the communal thought and he needs to be brought into the internal spiritual piece, which is kind of cool. Like is that the moment then that's hard and he's hiding something because that's that's spot on with where we are. You're right, right. We have the communal peace. We get it. And thank you. I think Moses is afraid to look within himself. Afraid to figure out who he is. Where he fits in. And when you say sort of look within himself, this is the challenge, and that's why I'm not worrying about the theological part of this, because I don't subscribe to one particular theology. I mean, on any given day, you're going to find me with a different one because I think they're all meant to be, they're all meant to fit within the same overall puzzle, even though some of them are contradictory. Because God's not the same for me every day. Sometimes I might need a different version that day or in that moment. And so for Moses to be able to say, I didn't know, now I have an awareness, we 
do something before we say the Amidah every time. We don't just sort of open our book. We take our steps when we say the Amidah. And there's different thoughts to it. There's the idea of know before whom you stand. And if it is the sovereign of the world, you've got to enter the throne room first, which is why you advance a couple of steps forwards. And why at the end, you know, you take three steps backwards. You never turn your back on the sovereign, so you're backing away, right? And you're bowing to everybody in the throne room. But that advancing in the building in the beginning might also be, it's hard. And you've got to put yourself in a different place. Your mind was drifting before. You were thinking of you know, personal problem you're having with somebody. You were worried about something from work about an errand that you didn't get to run, it just floated through your mind, and you're realizing, oh, oh, this is the serious part now. This is it. Let me get myself into the right space. And so you literally are moving your feet. But maybe it is you are actually taking your place in line. You are, you are next up. Because for all of his greatness, Moses is gone. For all of their mention, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're gone. And it's up to you. And if you have a generation after you, okay, now it's on them. But all you can do is take your place and maybe say, if Moses could do it, I can do it. If he could say, I'm, I'm aware, I'm awake, I'm paying attention. So I want to take us back to that you know, what are we supposed to get out of the fact that everything's spilling out of us? That we're getting to know ourselves better and better. I think it's the idea that we're not going to get what we're asking for. We may have identified what our deepest needs are, but in our putting them out there, maybe even crying them out there, it's not that we're necessarily going to will them into action. It may be that we simply need to call out. Because we can't go through a world which is surrounded by wonder and life and failure and disappointment and be numb to it. We can't be mute. We have to honor all of the amazement and all of the doubt, all of the insecurities and all of the happiness. And the reason why you got to face that stuff is because that's real for you. That's real, and you don't want to lead a life that's fake. We don't want Earthsat's existence. We want the real deal. And part of our problem is, if you really get to know yourself and you say, okay, I'm seeing that within myself, what am I going to do about that? It's one thing when you have this vision of your life, and you think you know it. You think you know who you are. But you're kind of seeing it from a surface level. You really might not know entirely who you are. And what if in this process of talking to God, more things tumble out and you get to know yourself better and you face yourself in a way that's like a reckoning? And you say, I'm, I'm different now. I can't unring that bell. I've said something about myself that 
I'm never going to be able to ignore, and I have to decide, am I going to come to grips with this? Am I going to do something about that? Is this going to set me on a path that maybe is going to be towards personal integrity of really being true to what is in there? And as to what makes this Jewish, the idea maybe of a sovereign, though I'm, I, I'm still working with the fact that I haven't checked all the latest poll figures, but it's 71% of most people between 45 and 106 will still think of a gendered person in the sky for God, even when we say we don't. But it keeps popping up. And part of that is because we have this whole Torah thing, you know? And Torah puts God in very sort of human terms. Getting angry, providing things, shaping things, organizing things. And it's hard to get away from that. It's not to say that that's not an important dimension, but there's so many other things. It could be that God is deep within you. It could be that God is the realization that occurs within you or gives you the capacity for such. When I was a kid, I learned all those fancy words for God, right? Omnipotent, omniscient, etc. So the omniscient, the all-knowing, that's kind of helpful. Because if I want to talk to God, I'm in this wonderfully unique position of I can say whatever the heck I want to say. I mean, one thing, if I went down to the rabbi's study and I said, listen, I need to meet with you, I'm probably just going to need about two and a half hours of your time. And the polite smile from Rabbi Witkowski as he starts thinking of all the things he's going to have to start canceling now because I won't stop. But he's too kind to say anything. But God, first of all, I think God has lots of time. God probably has as much time as I do, unless you sort of go with the whole infinite thing, in which case, no, it's not. But I can say anything to God who knows me. There's no truth that I can't tell. There's no way that I can feel like I'm going to be ashamed because I'm just telling my story to the one who knows it. How many people do you have in your life who you can do that with? And you might have someone with whom you can share deeply, but are they ready at the moment that you feel you need to share? The timing might not work out. What if you don't say it quite right and you've shared and that's another bell you can't unring? Or what about if you're just taking up too much of their time? Or they are starting to get irritated. So we have built in this incredible opportunity whenever we need to start into this path of getting to know ourselves at a deep level by sharing in a way that is, to me, I think verbal. And again, I keep coming back to that. And that will make you a little more comfortable. Not just that you're going to find yourself in that moment where you say, we're going to do some personal prayer. And we're going to sit around our table and we're going to say a prayer before we eat. Yes, before Hamotzi, Everybody take hands. I don't know that you are going to do that personal practice. I do find myself in that situation probably twice a year at least. Sometimes on the receiving end, sometimes I'm on the giving end. And 
it still feels like a jacket that doesn't quite fit me. I'm working on it. The alterations are happening bit by bit. And I'm hoping that it will feel more comfortable. Let's take a look at the text on the top of the back side of this. Go on by Rabbi Laura Geller. The prayer book is a major impediment. Oy. A major impediment to prayer. There are many images of God in Jewish tradition. The ones that got fixed in the prayer book are images of God as a power over, as opposed to empowering. Subsequent generations of prayer books have tried hard to overcome it. Yet the fact is that when people confront prayer, particularly on the high holidays, they see God's kingship in such an overwhelming way that it interferes with their ability to connect to God or to validate experiences that actually are connections to God but don't fit that model. It's hard to let go of the baggage. The visions that we carry from when we were kids and maybe that prayer book that we used, you know, we, when we still see the prayer now, at this time, we can sort of remember where it was on that page when we spent our years in the high holiday service seeing it. And it could be the language that was used by somebody who spoke on those special days about God. But we get locked into that prayer book and it's hard to move on from there. And we're faced with that task of, well, so we, do we just say the words? That brings me to the Rambam, which is the next text. If you pray moving your lips while you face a wall, but you think of your business affairs, or you read the Torah with your tongue, but your heart is thinking about building your house with no awareness of what you're reading, or you fulfill any commandment with your limbs, like a person who digs a hole in the ground or chops trees in the forest with no awareness of the true meaning of the action, not who commanded it to be done, nor its true purpose. Do not think you have achieved the purpose. Is it to say you don't go through the motions unless you're bringing your deepest intent behind it? This sort of is, and so does the following one, text with Rabbi Eliezer, says, person should always be evaluating himself. Do that self-check-in. Where are you at this moment? If he's able to concentrate, lechavein et libo, to direct his heart, then he should pray. But if he is not able to, he must not pray. Hmm. Really does either limit you because some might say, well, yes, but if I'm not really feeling it right now, what if that leads me to? What if, what if that's the step that brings me into you know, a degree of connection? Or you could also look at it from the other side and say, that's my out. I'm not bothering with the words because it's going to be not true to who I am. I, I'm just, I'm not, that's not where my headspace is right now.
I don't think that you have to be a, the person who knows everything that you're saying, but it's more, if you're not even bringing your... Be in the present. Yeah, because if you're thinking about the other things, if you are literally just letting the words roll, then according to this, it's, it's not. I did offer that model last week from Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, who was saying, look, it's got to be like a script. You want those words to be so familiar, they are just rolling off your tongue. And that allows you to float on top of them, to surf those waves. But the thing is, you're not just thinking about your vacation. You're specifically surfing those words because of why you're there in the first place. You're being carried forward to that destination, not to some side trip. And we're going to talk about what do you do if I am going to be a person who is praying in the Siddur and I don't know all of these words. Right? We have that now. You, you already have one from the Amidah. Every time you're saying the name of our ancestors, you can think of that phrase, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Moses needed to be told. Moses didn't know God. Look what happened to him. And you have to be willing to take your steps and say, I want to go on that path. I may not end up where Moses ended up, but I should be just as capable of saying, this is something that I'm going to build. I have students at my school. It often happens by a certain age where they say, how come God doesn't talk to us anymore? And I humor them and I say, what do you mean? Well, because, you know, we saw that God talked to this person and God talked to that person. God doesn't really talk to us. And I said, really? What do you mean? How do you know? And so they say, well, God's never talked to me. I said, ah. And then I share that God's never talked to me either. And I don't expect that God's going to talk to me. But we're faced with those words in the Torah. God calls to Abraham, sends him on a journey. But, and this will certainly work for this room, most of it anyway, I was one of these folks who, I grew up with a little tiny transistor radio. And I listened to, I can't tell you how many baseball games on this radio. And sometimes you had to adjust the little antenna that you pulled up, sometimes you had to fiddle with the tuning button. And but at least I was putting the antenna up. I was trying to get reception. What if that's how it was with Abraham? Right? What if Abraham was open to the fact that there's more than meets the eye? What if the, the messages were going out all the time on the airwaves? He was the only one sort of fiddling with the right frequency and the antenna up angled the right way. So the question is, is it that God's not reaching us? Or is it that God's not talking because we're not talking? And you might say, well, what does that really mean? Are you suggesting that if I do this practice, if I start talking to God, you really think I'm going to hear something? I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't think you're going to hear it in your ears. but. What we are able to take in 
with our very limited kinds of senses, I, I think that there is something to this that you sometimes have to question and you say, where is that really coming from? And that degree of wonderment, I don't know. I think there's a hint in there of something. I don't know. Do we agree with that? Maybe. Right. And then the question is, what are we listening for? Do you know? Are we? What may, what I may hear may not be what you hear. We might need different things, right? Can't argue with that. Sometimes we might say, in answer to a question, you know, do you believe, we might find ourselves hemming and hawing. Right? But when the question is rephrased, did you feel a, a moment? Did you feel a moment of connection where you felt connected to God? Asking it that way somehow for a lot of folks makes the answer come out very differently. They can point to a moment. And I think that's the difference between the cognitive and the emotional. I think our response, our prayerfulness, is, it needs to be built on experience. I don't think it's built on thinking it out. Theology, that's the tough one. Theology is the, you know, I'm trying to think if I have my Art Green quote on here. always tell by the way in the movies if they've read the Midrash because in, in the, the animated one it's the same actor who voices God as well as Moses. Right? Like, but it both makes that intellectualized to say oh no God is really just your conscience speaking to you but if you can do it right it's actually saying no that voice you hear in your head while you're speaking aloud is It gets to be that challenge of if, if you really, if you're locked into a single way or very much into a dualistic idea that God's got to be out there, God's got to be other. And there is, there is a limiting factor to that. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll learn more on your upcoming three-part Thursday uh, theology course. That do... <laughs> no! <laughs> yeah. Rabbi, I, am, um, I, I get the impression, uh, I, I understand from you that So, yes and. I do believe very strongly in prayer in those other times other than 
my morning, afternoon, evening. I'll be honest, sometimes those are meaningful, sometimes they are, I feel like I, I have to. It's not, it's, not always, it's not always working. That's the image of uh, you know, Charlie Brown trying to get the kite to fly. You know, it's bouncing along on the ground, and he's just, sometimes it, it, it takes off. Right? But, so I do, I do have both. I have those moments, and I also do have my moments where I really feel a personal connection to a personal God in the context of my prayers. And we're going to look at a couple next week very specifically with a strategy that I think, um, I think it works for, for little kids and big kids. No, so I get a couple of things. Certainly, and there was a big change during the, after the destruction of the temple, you had, um, let's see if I gave you this, this text. No, of course I didn't put that on here, did I? What do I do? The very last one. So the back page, the one, the Babylonian Talmud, Brachot 30a. This is the idea that you were moving towards keeping yourself linked up with the community. Because this one said, if someone prays standing outside of Israel, he should direct his heart toward the land of Israel. Of course, already, if, if you're thinking about it, if you, we're going to finish that sentence your, yourself. If you're standing outside the land of Israel, you should direct your heart toward God. But it doesn't say that. It says towards the land of Israel. It's orienting you towards the homeland. It's reinforcing the idea of peoplehood. Not only that, if it really is, though, exclusively about linking up almost like this big geographic sort of region, it would say something about your face or your body. It would say, turn your feet towards, turn your nose towards, let your mouth face, but it doesn't. It says, what do you direct? Your heart. It's this interesting mix you want to be part of, which may be the form. We're all doing that. But your heart has to be involved in a way that there, there is going to be a personal connection. And then it starts taking you through the, the various. And if you're a little closer, and if you're a little closer, it's bringing you into the inner sanctum, into that spot. So for me, I'm doing something together with everybody. I'm saying those same words. I feel a bond with everybody. But I'm also pulling out specific phrases. I couldn't have done it when my Hebrew was weaker. And I also don't think, as I mentioned before, I don't think you need to look at a block of Hebrew and say, I understand everything there. And my goal is also not to have everybody. My goal is for, for next week specifically that you're not even going to have to glance over to the other side of the page and go, let me just quickly look over at that. But you're going to identify a phrase, a very short phrase. And we'll be able to do a little bit together, but it should be something that you could probably do maybe a little bit on your own, even in, oh good, the rabbi's gone, in the context of the service. It can be. I was noticing something that um, I was noticing somebody came in this past Shabbat and they were they came in and they sat down and shortly after they sat down everybody stood up and that person remained sitting down 
and I noticed the body language of several people where it was kind of a little bit judgy. And it reminded me of the story where you know somebody sits down and they say, what page are we on? And the person answers, um, well, I'm on page 60. I don't know what page everybody else is on. In other words, taking ownership and saying, it's OK if I'm not going at the same pace as you. It's not like the old joke where you know, the person Sadly, they started saying Kaddish. It was their first real experience to getting into the daily minion, the daily service. And they would come in, and things are moving pretty fast. So finally, they say, after a couple of services, they say to the cantor, look, I start where you're starting. And when you get to the bottom of the page, I'm still in the middle. The cantor says, I know. It shouldn't be like that. Why don't you start in the middle? <laughs> we should be allowed to be where we need to be. And if we need to hang out on a certain page because something has, has hooked us, we should be allowed to. Yeah. The whole mandate, right, the commandedness, the I need to do this, I'm not going to be able to sort of move you from where you are on that to another spot. As I already confessed tonight, there are times where sometimes my daily prayer doesn't necessarily move me, but I feel like I still need to do it. That's part of my streak that I have going, and I don't want to break the streak. In terms, in terms of the Amidah, there are a variety of comments that come from that same section of Brachot, where that last one came from, which say, if the prayer is fluent in your mouth, say the whole thing. If it isn't, you may say a shortened version of it. So there are actually different opinions that are in there. And But it could also be that if you take the time to work on something that might not be that prayer, now all of a sudden you're feeling more of a vested interest in what's going on in the service. Whereas if you didn't take that detour and you said, you know what, I'm just going to stand with everybody and do exactly what everybody does, and I might just be going through the motions, you might be sort of ossifying yourself in the moment where you say, and I, now I really don't feel connected. So what is it that God would really want? You know, if God is the commander, God might say, well, yeah, I really want you doing this, but if this is what you're going to need to eventually get to the point where you do it, then maybe that's where you need to be. I like to think we have a pretty forgiving God. 
saying something to the time of day or whatever. I will say I get like nothing out of the The left sides. I like those comments. Yeah, they're good. But most of all, I get the most out of when I'm zoning out from the bigger creative comments and I'm doing my own personal bit. And so I don't have to be in the synagogue to do that, but there is the communal factor. Right. You might not have reached that point were it not for being surrounded by. Yeah. I, I like being with the people. There are certain tunes I like singing that mm. makes me. You know, it's funny, I'm going to go back to what Doug said, that there are times in the prayer that's in the book where it's completely personal, spontaneous prayer. I'll point to two particular ones. There's that paragraph at the end of the Amidah. So really, everyone finishes the Amidah and they take their steps backwards. But there's this little paragraph, and the end of it is Ose Shalom. Purely optional. It's there in case you can't think of anything else to say. But that is the moment where, before you take your steps backwards, you're supposed to say, did what I was supposed to do. Let's say I've primed the pump. Now things are going to start flowing. Now I'm putting out my own personal deep petitions, my own personal prayer. That's your spot right there. It's built in. The words are there on the page as a default in case you really can't come up with something. But you are expected to have that moment. So that's one spot. And that reminds me of the dominoes, something which you'll notice. For those of you that see me in there, you will notice. When I finish the Amidah, I first look around. There's a measurement called an Amah, an Amah's elbow to fingertip. And the legal definition of a boundary for certain things is called, called Dalid Amot, four Amot. So, one, two, three, four. I'm Dalid Amot from there, I'm Dalid Amot from you. I'm... You're not really supposed to sit down if somebody within a radius of that, of four cubits, is still standing doing their prayer. Now you might say, oh, really, thanks, another rule, really appreciate it. Here's the thing. Most people, they start seeing somebody sit down, and what's the next person do? They sit down, and it's dominoes. That person was nowhere near finished the prayer, and they were making some good progress, but they just feel rushed to kind of have to sit down. And imagine if you looked up and you see somebody, and they're still standing. You just glance. You see it out of the corner of your eye. So when I see people sort of take their steps, I'm like, okay, now I'll sit. I'm, I'm there in support of the people that are around me. And it's to let people have their personal moment. Yeah. Um, so if a person wanted to practice Judaism at home by themselves without anyone else, is there anything to Because there are certain prayers that we can only pray alone. What's the difference between prayers that we can only pray alone and prayers that we can pray is there a different nature? 
you have to just drop certain ones out. There aren't that many, meaning you're not going to read from a Torah without the group, but you could open up the Bible and read if it was a Monday or a Thursday or a Saturday afternoon. You're not going to be able to do the Barhu. But the Barhu is a call to worship, but if you're by yourself, you don't really need that Barhu. You're not going to be able to do the Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. You skip over that one. But most of what's in there, you're still going to be able to do. That wasn't the question? Not really. Oh, okay. Um, is, there, is there something that characterizes the prayers that um, you So they're characterized, they're, they're, they're listed out in the Talmud. They're considered dvarim shepik dushah, things that are in holiness, which really means those things that are of a sufficient level of holiness that they may only be performed when you have the proper quorum or the minion. There's the saying that God is raised evermore when we are in the crowd. Now, that may have been said by the rabbis long ago because they were trying to get the crowds together. I do think that there is something that is awesome about gathering together as a community. And I don't want to play it off as a, should it be this or this? That's why I really want to say it should be both. I think you should make those times for the personal moments. Um, and there should be times where you say, listen, I don't have time to go and do that or I'm not in the mental frame of mind to go and do that. And if you can bring that sense of meaning, I, I, I didn't used to be this way. I used to be very punctilious to a point of obnoxiousness. I'm sure I annoyed many of the people in my family as I came on board with my observance. But things work in a pendulum-type fashion. There's another part that you'll see, not on Shabbat, because it's a prayer that's not offered on Shabbat. It's called Takanun. Some would say it really means supplication, or that begging, or that pleading. Others say, you know, don't be so sure that that's what it means. It might be related to the word chen, tachanun, chen, which is graciousness. You're really seeking God's grace. But this one happens after the Amidah, and in a weekday minion, you'll see, if it's a place where there's a Torah, people will sit down, and they'll bend their head forward, and they'll put it on their arm and they'll lean forward. And there's words in the book that you say. It's the same thing as the other one I just mentioned. The words are there as a default. That's the time when you are supposed to offer your deep, personal prayers. And the book makes space for it. A lot of people don't know that, and they go like, oh, more stuff to say. And it's like, no, 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 no. Look at that page and go, ooh, my own time right now. And the whole idea of, of leaning on the arm, we used to fall flat on our faces. Sometimes it was a kneel, sometimes it was a bow, sometimes it was a complete um, prostration. And this is reminding us of that moment. We don't do it anymore. So we do that. But that should be your deep personal prayer. We have another one coming up tomorrow night, folks. Candle lighting. Some of you might have had somebody in your family who they would always offer tchinnis. These are those prayers at the moment of candlelighting. They are personal prayers. Some of them have written down in their books of Tchinis, which is Tchinot, like Tachanun, your own personal petitions. But that's an ideal time for personal prayers when you're lighting candles. You don't need a minion, but it's that time where you're saying, I am ushering in the Sabbath. This is that threshold. I am crossing the threshold, moving into a holy time. Literally, when you drop that match, you say that blessing, you are making holy time happen.
We often think, well, it happens specifically at that time, but if you light five minutes earlier, for you, it becomes the Sabbath. And people often, they're, that's their ideal time. They're thinking of their family. They're thinking about the things they're really worried about. Some are saying, let me take a stock of where I am because I've arrived at a certain point. And as I enter Shabbat, I'm leaving behind the week. What was this week in terms of my experience? What was my growth? So whatever you're doing with those moments, sometimes you may have competing things. You may say, I've got people for dinner, or I've got to head out the door to house, for somebody's house for dinner, or I, I just have other things in my mind. But imagine if you said, I'm going to give myself another 60 seconds and light the candles, but that's my time. We have these moments that are built in, and we don't take advantage of them sometimes, and we should. We should give ourselves that benefit of it. Yeah. I just want to share a, a, a story I have. Um, I think we have to give ourselves a measure of freedom because in giving ourselves that bit of freedom, we might just expand the whole, the whole playing field. Giving ourselves that freedom might give us a lot more space, and in that space, we might, we might discover a lot of, a lot of wonderful stuff. Yes, I think you get the last comment, and then I get to send you away. Yeah. Do you, do you think this is like what you're talking about? Is like absolutely. I haven't been consistent. Meaning, all of my thoughts are coming from different places, and even th since last week. I've had so many competing thoughts of what I wanted to emphasize and what was on my mind. It's, it's a moving target. So there are some elements here of what some might call neo-Hasidic. I think neo-Hasidic is just Hasidic in new language. I mean, it, a lot of it's the same. Um, but some of it is, yeah, a lot of it is. Because for them it was, let's move away from being locked into the idea of being book people. And let's understand that the dimensions beyond just the book and the learning are equally valuable. That, that, that wordless tune can elevate you as much as that prayer can. Whereas other people might say, that's just a wordless tune and stop wasting our time with that. You know, I, I want to start a, what's called a nigun circle. Nigun is the wordless melody. I want to start a nigun circle and I don't want it just to be for the Jewish folks. I want to do it with a local faith community and say, let's get together. We don't have to worry about the words. Right? And let's see where it leads us. I don't know. I also just like to sing. I want to thank you all for coming. And if you weren't bored out of your mind, then you can certainly come next week, and we're going to dive into some of the, uh, some specific prayers that you'll be able to take with you and hopefully add them to your, your quiver and be able to draw the arrow when you need to. Thank you.